For those of you who are visiting with us or need a reminded, we've started a series on knowing God. And uh, basically what we're doing is taking a look at questions that are common questions that come up in our experience with one another. And the first thing that we concentrated on was um, the existence of God. How do we know that God existed? And uh, we went through different proofs that we can use to help us to validate our belief in the existence of God. We saw that the material universe needs to be responded to in some way. There has to be some answer to how the material universe got here. There's got to be an answer to the design and the order of the material universe. Why is it so structured? Why is it so organized? There has to be answers to the nature of man. Where did man come from? And basically those two opposing views are that we have a a creator God who made us in his image and his likeness versus those who say that we have evolved from some type of whatever. And uh, we've, we've looked at that. We've looked into the Bible as being proof that God exists. We've seen the person of Jesus Christ also needs answers as to who he was and who he is and what he claimed to be and what he claimed to do. And And the final thing that we looked at that gave us proof as far as the existence of God is that our personal experience would indicate to us if we've come to know God through Jesus Christ and our lives have been changed, then that is something that needs to be accounted for. So we've looked at these things to help us to identify whether God truly exists or not. And I think they give us some very strong arguments in favor of the existence of God. Now, if God exists, the next obvious question is, how does he reveal himself to us? And for the last couple of sessions, we've looked at God has chosen to use the Bible as a major source in his revelation of himself to us. And uh, we've seen that the Bible is a reliable and trustworthy document. First of all, we saw because it meets and exceeds all the recognized and accepted tests of historicity that are used to authenticate documents of antiquity. The second thing that we saw was last week that Jesus himself often quoted from the scriptures the written word of God claiming it to be exactly that, that it is God's word in written form. And he used that to validate the scriptures as being exactly what he claimed it was, the word of God. Therefore, it has truth, absolute truth. It has meaning that could be understood, absolutely. And also, it's eternal and it's timeless, meaning that a God who is outside of time and space could give us information about himself, about ourselves, about our future, as if, you know, he could see it because he can, and he gives it to us in precise detail. So now we come to the point that I want to get into this morning, and that is the Bible is unique in many ways. And since you've had an extra hour of sleep, and this is the only week that I do it out of the whole year because it's the only time that I think you've got an advantage. You got that extra hour of sleep. How many of you actually use that extra hour to sleep? Oh, you did? Oh, good. Okay. Well, then you should be right on top of these things. Because, you know, I always wondered what you'd be like an hour later in the day. And uh, I got to admit, at this point, I'm sadly disappointed in what I thought I would have to work with. But then again, we can always overcome these little things. And so we've got the... In fact, we even got prizes to give out this morning, if you participate. How many of you have had an attaboy in a while? Or an attagirl? There you go. Johnny, what do we have for these participants? We've got attaboys and attagirls, Chuck. Well, great, Johnny. Thank you very much. Well, and that's what we've got. So let's go through and just show everyone around you how much biblical knowledge you actually have. The Bible is unique in its continuity because... How many books are in the Bible? 66. How many in the Old Testament? And, oh, I see that now. It was like... Oh. Everyone goes, 66! In the Old Testament. 39. All right, now, how many do you do? 
Okay, so I have a math problem there. Some of you have already got, beat me too. It was like six, six, or nine. Okay, I got that next one. All righty. Okay, how many years was it written over? A period of how long? 1,500 years? All righty, very good. Um, how many different authors were used by God to write it? All right? 40, good. That's what I like that confidence that you're displaying here this morning. All right, now we're going to have to break it up now. No more group stuff. Okay. Somebody give me, uh, give me one author. Huh? Okay, hang on. Moses. Okay. What was Moses' position in life? What did he do for a living? Huh? He was a leader of the Jewish people. He was a leader. Okay. He, he was a political leader. All right. Where was he educated? You're going to trouble now, aren't you? <clears throat> Where did he get his education? Yes, indeed. He was educated in Egypt. Grew up there, right there with Pharaoh, second, third in command. He was in the courts of the Egyptians. He was educated in the universities of Egypt. And he was one of the men that God had chosen to reveal himself, to reveal his word, to write it. Okay, who else do we know? Paul. Okay, who was he? There you go, Saul of Tarsus. Okay, what did he do for a living? He was a tent maker. Huh? He was a tent maker. Where was he educated? Huh? Hello. Now, you got your own conversations going on here. What's going on now? Am I losing control? All right, now you're going around going, huh? What's going on? All right, he's a rabbinical teacher. All right, he was educated. He was educated in Jewish law and Jewish tradition, yet he was a tent maker. All right, who else do we know? David. What was David? He was a king. What else was he? He was a shepherd boy. What else did he do? He was a musician. What else do we know? Yeah, he was a musician. <laughs> An adulterer. There you Very good. And he was. And that's, that's important to know. It is absolutely important to know. Yet he was also a man after the heart of God. So that's interesting. And, that'll, and in fact, I want to bring up something. That was a very good point. What, um, uh, who else do we know? Luke. Okay, what was Luke? He was a doctor. All right. Who else? John. Son of thunder. Yes. What did he do? What was he? Oh yeah, that's it, huh? Hey man, I just want to—I just want to say, son of thunder, man. I don't know anything else. Okay, well, you know, he's a fisherman. All right, what else? Who else do we know? Matthew. What was he? He was a ripoff artist. He was a tax collector. Exactly, that's what he was. Okay, now where was Moses when he wrote? Dead. Dead. And holy men of God moved by the Holy Spirit. Huh? He was dead. Oh, the desert. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I said the wilderness is what I said. All right, he was out in the desert. Okay, How, where was Jeremiah when he wrote? All right, here's what we'll do. Like, you know, this whole section, you all get together, pull all the information that you have, and just come up with one answer. Huh? He was in a dungeon. Where was John when he wrote? He was banished on the Isle of Patmos, right? All right. What else do we know? How about Paul? He was inside a prison. Luke was traveling. John was on the Isle of Patmos. I mean, take a look at this. What, what were the time periods? What was going on? There was times of war. There was times of peace. There was times of prosperity. Some were in the heights of joy. Some were in the depths of sorrow when they wrote the Word of God. Uh, what, what continents were they written on? Ooh. 
It's that geography question. Asia, Africa, Europe. Very good. How many languages was the word written in? How many? How many? How many say three? How many don't want to play this game no more? All right. What are they? What's the three languages? Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. All right. There you go. So think about this. The, and, and what's the subject matter? What is the subject? I mean, what does it all come down to? All of this, all these authors, all the time, all the books, what does it come down to in an essence, in a, in a nutshell? What does it come down to? Knowing God. God revealing Himself to us. It all boils down to, I, I love the way Gessler and Nick's put it, it says it all boils down to the paradise lost of Genesis becomes the paradise regained of Revelation. Whereas the gate to the tree of life is closed in Genesis, it is open forevermore in Revelation. I like that. That's what it all comes down to. Okay, how about, how about its circulation? It's unique in its continuity when you think about it. 1,500 years, 40 different authors from all different walks of life God used, even those who failed often and miserably so, God still used them to reveal Himself to us. And I think that point, above everything else, indicates how much God loves us and cares for us. It's circulation. Listen to this. High Pickering said 30 years ago for the British Informed Bible Society to meet its demands, it had to publish, quote, one copy every three seconds, day and night, 22 copies every minute, day and night, 1,369 copies every hour, day and night, 32,876 copies every day in the year. No other book has ever come close to anything like this in circulation. The Bible is unique in its circulation. Also, in its translation, listen to the Encyclopedia Britannica says that it has been translated to date in 240 languages and dialects, one or more whole books of the Bible, and 739 additional ones. How about it's unique in its survival? Think about this. It says, being written on material that perishes and having to be copied and recopied for hundreds of years before the invention of the printing press, it did not diminish the style, the correctness, or the existence of the Bible. Compared with other ancient writings, it's more, it has more manuscript evidence than any ten pieces of classical literature combined. John Warwick Montgomery says, To be skeptical of the resultant text of the New Testament books is to allow all of classical antiquity to slip into obscurity. For no documents of the ancient period are as well attested bibliographically as the New Testament. Interesting. It has survived through persecution. It has withstood with vicious attacks, if you think about it, from many who have outlawed it from the days of the Roman empires even to our current days where communism had ruled out all but anyone's attempt to get the hands of the Word of God into the hands of the people. I like what the, uh, Sidney Collette says in All About the Bible. He says, Voltaire, the noted French infidel who died in 1778, said that in 100 years from his time, Christianity would be swept from existence and passed into history. But what had happened? Voltaire has passed into history while the circulation of the Bible continues to increase in almost all parts of the world, carrying blessing wherever it goes. Concerning the boast of Voltaire on the extinction of Christianity and of the Bible in a hundred years, Gessler and Nix point out that, quote, only 50 years after Voltaire's death, the Geneva Bible Society used his press in his house to produce stacks of Bibles. You've got to love God's sense of humor. 
Interesting. It has survived through criticism. It's unique in what it teaches. It teaches prophecy and history. I like what the, the one man says about history. It says, Hebrew national tradition excels all others in its clear picture of tribal and family origins. In Egypt and Babylonian and Assyrian, Phoenician, Greece and in Rome, we look in vain for anything that's comparable. There is nothing like it in the tradition of Germanic people. Neither India nor China can produce anything similar since their earliest historical memories are literary deposits of distorted dynastic tradition with no trace of the herdsman or peasant behind the, dem the demigod or king with whom their records begin. Neither in the oldest Indic historical writings nor in the earliest Greek historians is there a hint of the fact that both Indo-Aryans and Hellenas were once nomads who immigrated into their later abodes from the north. The Assyrians, to be sure, remembered vaguely that their earliest rulers, whose name they recalled without any details about their deeds, were tent dwellers, but whence they came had long been forgotten. What's the point of all of it? Is that God, in His Word, gave us tremendous detail. And so, in fact, Genesis 10, it is said, remains an astonishingly accurate document with nothing that comes close to it in comparison in all written history of any peoples. The point is very interesting because, you know what? God reveals every aspect of the personalities that He records in His Word. Now, if you think about this, Many who record their histories, and that's the point that was being made, the history of their family, the history of their nation, the history of their people, tend to leave out those people that would discredit them in some way. But God does not. God reveals us as we are. He reveals David exactly as he was, an adulterer who was a man after the heart of God. He reveals Moses as a man who was a leader, yet did not trust God in, in several areas of his life, therefore did not inherit the promised land and was left behind. He records in intimate detail his people to show us what they were really like. No other historical work does that for some type of fear that it would discredit the writing. And God has no fear at all because that's the way it was. See, the truth will set you free. God doesn't hesitate to share the truth with us. That we can learn from it. So I'm hoping that as we look at how unique the Bible is, that it will encourage some of us maybe to spark a renewed interest in reading it and understanding it for what it really is, and that is the Word of God. However, there's a new problem that we're going to hurdle today, and that problem is this. How many of you have ever heard someone say to you, you know what, Well, there's, but there's so many different interpretations of the Bible, why should I believe yours? How many of you heard that? I mean, there's so many different interpretations of the Bible, why should I believe you? Why should I believe yours? Why should I believe your churches? Why should I believe your churches? Why should I believe this denomination and not that one? In fact, many skeptics will use the denominational argument by saying, you know what, there's so many denominations, therefore it must be impossible to determine what's really true. And that's false in its assumption. Because what's false about it is, is that it believes that every denomination is so drastically different that there's nothing that we have in common or that we believe with one another, and that's not accurate. Because if you get right down to it, all the different divisions as far as denominations are concerned are not divided over the central teachings of the Bible. And that is that we do have a God who did create us in His image and His likeness. He gave us free will or choice. And man chose to do what was wrong before God introducing sin into the world. 
God understood that problem long before it ever took place. And as a result, He made a provision for that sin that separated us from God. And that God in the person of Jesus Christ came to this earth to live a perfect life, to shed His blood on a cross for the sins of all of humanity. That He would raise Him from the dead three days later. And that if we would believe or trust in Him, we would be made right with God and that we would become children of God to those who believe in His name. All the different denominations, central teaching, believe that to be true. So the denominational argument doesn't hold any water because the difference in most denominations are on the peripheral issues. They have to do with culture and custom and tradition. They have to do with things like methods of baptism. They have to do with things that really don't make any difference as far as the central teaching of Scripture. They have to do with things like the styles of worship. We like traditional. We like contemporary. We like dunking them. We like sprinkling them. You know, whatever. We like washing their feet. We don't want to touch anybody's feet. You know, know, and those are the differences. and, and, And we need to understand that those arguments don't hold any water to the skeptic that says, well, you know what, there's no way that we can really determine truth. That's not true at all. In fact, what we're going to talk about this week and next is the problem that we need to deal with is how do you handle the Scripture accurately? How do you make sure, if you want to personalize it, how can I be sure that what I am reading, I am interpreting the way that it was meant to be understood? Handling the Scripture accurately. Let me ask you a question. If I I say the word abuse, what comes to mind? Abuse. Children. What? Wives. Pardon me? Uh, And little husbands. Oh, we're we're wives, little husbands. Oh, we're playing that game, are we? All righty, here we go. I'm not getting involved in this at all. Just telling you right now. Oh, Bill, you want to tell your joke? Oh, you don't want to tell your joke. Okay. That was a wife-type joke, ladies. I'm just telling you right now. This is the kind of stuff i got to deal with. The man comes up to me and says, i got a good joke for you to tell. <laughs> it had something to do with when God came to Adam and he said, uh, Hey, Adam, I, I'm going to create a helpmate for you, but it's going to cost you an arm and a leg. And he said, hey, uh, Well, you know what? Uh, what can I get for a rib? Um, so anyway... <laughs> I don't, I don't understand it at all. But, hey, 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 you got any, hey, you got any complaints? Would you, right there, there's the guy, right there. That's right. Send all your cards and letters to him. Because I don't really understand it. All right, okay, we're back to abuse. We're back, okay. I mean, think about it. What comes to your mind when you think of abuse? Okay, children, drugs, um, children, spousal abuse, um, politicians, uh, power abuse. Yeah, well, I mean, we can, we can look at it that way. I mean, so basically, it, it's kind of a negative connotation, right? I mean, let's face it. And what it does is, if you think about it in, in, in its essence, abuse is taking that which God intended for good and manipulating it in some way to create that which is bad or destructive. Emotional abuse, God-given emotions that God had given to us to enjoy, uh, to, to uh, fulfill our life. When you're emotionally abused, it takes those emotions and distorts it to the point where it destroys the person who is emotionally abused. Sexual abuse, a beautiful gift given by God to people that are to be, in, in, to be enjoyed within the confines of marriage. 
And when it's taken beyond that context, it destroys something that's good and turns it into something that's destructive. Physical abuse, we see that. We see emotional abuse. We see verbal abuse, where words can be used to lift up and build up people. We often use words to destroy people. That's why God says, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only the word that is edifying or good for the moment that the hearer will receive and be given grace at the time of need that they have. See, now if I said the word biblical abuse... What would you think of? It's the same problem. It leads to the same results. It distorts that which God intended to be good and informative and give us a positive direction, and it manipulates that truth to abuse the hearer to make the person that is abusing it say whatever they want it to say. If you've come from a legalistic background, I guarantee you, if you've been biblically abused, you know how badly it hurts. You know the guilt that you go through. You know all the stuff that you got to carry with you and all the baggage. And all of that goes along with it. If you come from a cultic background, you know exactly how it feels to be abused by the Bible, manipulated by the Bible. The person that says that they know more about the Bible than you do, they take it and they twist it and they distort it and they manipulate you to the point where you're just, you, you don't know what's true, what's not true, what's right, what's not wrong, what to do, what not to do. And you begin to apply these things as they're taught you as they manipulate it, and then they teach you, and then you begin to apply them, and the problem is you begin to apply them in erroneous ways with destructive end results. So it's really important that we understand that we have to handle the Scriptures accurately if, if God's intention is to be fulfilled. Now the question is, why does sometimes the Bible is it mishandled? Let me just share some things with you, kind of an overview. The problem of misinterpretation many times is mishandling the Bible. And oftentimes we see this as a result. Accurately interpreting Scripture has nothing to do with sincerity. So the most sincere people in the world manipulate and distort the truth of the Bible. Some of the most sincere people in the world that you'll ever meet sincerely believe what they've been taught by someone or some organization that has taken the Bible and distorted its meaning for its own purposes. And they believe it. And then they apply it accordingly. Sincerity has nothing to do with it. Some of the most sincere teachers of the Bible have taken passages of the Bible and distorted them sincerely because they're afraid to teach God's grace. Why? Because there's freedom in God's grace. We have choices that can be made in God's grace. We can do things that maybe others wouldn't do because God gives us the freedom to choose whether it's right for us or wrong for us. And so therefore there are those who would teach the Bible and say, you know what, I don't want them to have that freedom. So you can't do these following things. And yet the Bible does not speak specifically of those things that we are told we cannot do. We've got a problem. You can't dance. You can't wear skirts. You can't go to church without your head covered. I mean, think about these things. You can't go to the movies. You can't. You can't. You can't. We're afraid to teach the truth of the Word of God because we're afraid that people will do something that's different than what we think we should do. But we need to be honest with the text. We need to allow the Word of God to teach 
people exactly what it says and then to give them the freedom to make those applications. See, sincerity has nothing to do with it. Being theologically trained oftentimes has nothing to do with it, and I'll demonstrate that in a moment. Although there's nothing wrong with knowledge, there's nothing wrong with education, but as my professor buddy here often says, PhD sometimes stands for pout higher and deeper. And, uh, and that's the truth. Now, there's nothing wrong with getting a PhD, and there's nothing wrong with being educated, but it depends on what you're educated in, where you're educated, and what your end conclusions are as a result of your education. All those things need to be taken into consideration. But don't be intimidated by somebody who says, trust me because I've got these degrees when it comes to interpreting Scripture. It may be a point of positive direction, but those who teach the Word of God had better have a strong evidence behind what they're saying is true and why we should trust them and believe them. Personality has nothing to do with it. Some of the most dynamic people in the world that just dripping with charisma have strong personalities and it has nothing to do with whether or not they're interpreting the Bible right. And filling up big old churches has nothing to do with whether what they're teaching is correct. And it goes along with popularity. Popularity. You know, we need to understand that the Bible clearly teaches, and if you'll open it, look at it with me, in uh, 2 Corinthians 4.2, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at, Corinthians, at Corinth and said, you know what, I need to warn you about something, and that is that there is a possibility exists that there would be those who would manipulate and distort the truth. 2 Corinthians 4.2 says, But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. He said, we didn't come to you and we didn't distort and manipulate the word of God for our own benefit, for our own sake. We didn't try to make God's word say what we wanted it to say for our own purposes. We came to you and laid it out and said, that's the way it is. They didn't adulterate the word of God. Which means what? The possibility exists that there will be those who will come that will take and manipulate the Word of God, interpret it as they wish it to be interpreted, and then twist its meaning so that different meaning is interpreted by the listener so that therefore they begin to apply it in a way that God never intended. In Second Peter, turn to that, chapter 3, look at verse 16. We see the same warning in a different way. And that is that Peter writes and says, As also in all his letters, speaking the Apostle Paul, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as do also the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction. What's he saying? He's saying that it's possible for those who are untaught, for those who are unstable, to take the words of truth and distort them and manipulate them to their own destruction. So we got to be careful, folks. we got to wake up. we got to understand that that problem is a very real problem as it, as it pertains to if God has chosen His Word to reveal Himself to us, it becomes critical that we understand clearly what He's trying to reveal. Because if we interpret it wrong... The revelation that we get as far as who God is and His plan for us and our future will then be distorted to the point where we will not clearly see who God is. We will not clearly understand His plan. We will not see where we are in light of who He is and what we should be doing. And we won't understand anything. And we're in deep trouble when that happens. 
So mishandling the Bible or accurately interpreting it has nothing to do with sincerity or theological training or personality or popularity, but what it has to do with, look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Here's what it all boils down to, and here's what we need to understand. The Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, commands him to do this. And it's a command that is appropriate of us as well. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. We read this. He says, But be diligent. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. He says, Be diligent. I think one of the biggest problems that we have in interpreting Scripture is that not many of us, I'm not saying not any, but I'm saying not many, are diligent. And they're seeking and searching the Scriptures. Saying be diligent. The word means to be eager, to be earnest, to put in effort, to put in some pain and sweat and toil and dig through it and get down to it. And he's saying, but don't be lazy in your approach to study in Scripture if you want to accurately interpret it. But you need to be diligent. You need to dig through it, man. You need to sift through it. You need to search God's truth. You need to go through it and you can present yourself approved to God as a workman. Takes work, hard work. To interpret scripture accurately. And the problem is that not many of us want to put in that type of effort. It takes hard work. He says, but if you do it, you won't be ashamed. If you do it, you'll be able to handle accurately the word of truth. If you do it, God will reveal himself to you as he has chosen to do so. And you will see clearly who God is. You will see clearly what his message is for your life you will see clearly what the, the direction is that you should go. In fact, I love what um, uh, one commentator says. He says about 2 Timothy 2.15, he says that these, this word, speaking of handling accurately or correctly dividing the word of truth, combines two Greek words, which means straighten to cut. He says this, because Paul is a tent maker, as we've already discovered, because he's a tent maker, he may have been using an expression that tied in with his trade. When Paul made tents, he used certain patterns. In those days, tents were made from the skins of animals in a patchwork sort of design, and every piece would have to be cut and fitted together properly. Paul was simply saying, if one doesn't cut the pieces right, the whole won't fit together properly. It's the same thing with Scripture. If one doesn't interpret correctly the different parts, the whole message won't come through correctly. In Bible study and interpretation, the Christian should cut it straight. He should be precise and as a result, he will be accurate. I like that. Failure to do so often has harmful results. And oftentimes, ends up in embarrassing situations. One of my favorite stories that, that I like to share when I'm talking about misinterpretation of something was a story that I heard when we were in Switzerland a few years ago. And I've used it before, so if you've heard it, bear with me. But for those of you who hadn't, this is a perfect place to, to use it to help you understand something. But it was a story of a little old English lady who was looking for a room in Switzerland, and she asked a local village schoolmaster to help her. So a place that suited her was finally found, and the woman returned to London for her luggage. She remembered that she had not noticed a bathroom, or as she called it in England, they're called water closets. So she wrote to the schoolmaster, and he was puzzled by the initials WC. Never dreaming that she was inquiring about a bathroom, he asked around, and finally a parish priest and he decided that W.C. had to stand for the Wesleyan Church. 
So the schoolmaster wrote her this reply. Dear Madam, the WC is situated nine miles from the house in the center of a beautiful grove of trees. It is capable of holding 350 people at a time and is open each Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday. A large number of folks attend during the summer, so it is suggested that you get there early, although there is plenty of standing room. Some people like to take their lunches and make a day of it, especially on Thursday where there is an organ accompaniment. As you can imagine, the acoustics are very good and everyone can hear the slightest sound. Now, you may also be interested to know that my daughter met her husband and was married in RWC. We hope you'll be here in time for our upcoming bazaar. Yeah, I'm sure it will be. The proceeds will go for, uh, towards the purchase of plush seats, which the folks agree are long felt need as the present seats all have holes in them. My wife, who is rather delicate, therefore, she cannot attend regularly. It's been six months since the last time she went. Naturally, naturally, it pains her very much not to be able to go more often. I shall close, with the, I shall close now with the desire to accommodate you in every way possible. I will, be happy to, I will be happy to save you a seat down front or near the door, whichever you prefer. Misinterpretation. One person thinking of one thing, the other person thinking of another, and as a result, there is no communication. See, and as a result, it's, it's, it's critical that we understand if God is to communicate with you and I, we must make sure that we understand clearly what, he, what it is that he's trying to say. The problem of biblical misinterpretation or abuse isn't that funny. And it certainly isn't a new problem. And if you've got your Bibles, turn with me and I will show you how the theologically trained misinterpreted the Scriptures. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus brings it out clearly to their attention. Jesus confronted by the theologically trained on a regular basis as they questioned and challenged His knowledge of Scripture and not only his knowledge of the scriptures, but also his lifestyle and the things that he did. And in Matthew chapter 9, starting with verse 10, we read this. And it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax gatherers and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Hey, why is your teacher eating with the tax gatherers and the sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. And he quotes Hosea 6, where he says, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. And Jesus says, For I did not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Do you see what Jesus said to them? He had the audacity to tell them that they misinterpreted the scriptures. He said to them, you are theologically trained. You are teachers of the words of God. You need to go back to school and you need to learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. 
Go back and study it again. You know why? Because you mishandled the text. You misunderstood what God was saying. And I'm going to point it out to you. Because you know what? You are wrong. That's what he said. Now turn ahead to Matthew chapter 12. It doesn't get any better for these people. In Matthew 12, verses 1 through 8, we see the same problem. It says, at, the t- at that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath through the grain fields, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Behold, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read? Now what's he referring to again? Scriptures? Have you not read? Now, the point is, I'm sure that you've read it, but it's obviously what you read you don't understand. But let me just remind you. Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread which was not lawful to eat, nor of those with him, but for the priest alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. I like this because, see, we jump ahead from chapter 9 to chapter 12, but there's a period of time that has taken place here. And the thing I like about it is he brought it back up again. He said, remember last time we had this conversation, I told you to go and study again. I told you to go, you didn't understand what, you're, what you were saying. And here we go, you're on the same, you got the same problem. You still haven't got the meaning of the text right. If you would have known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. See, there were those who were laying guilt trips on people saying you couldn't do certain things because that's what, the, that's what God says. And here Jesus clarifies and said, God never said that. And you're laying this guilt trip on people, telling them things that they should and shouldn't do that God never said nor ever intended. You're misinterpreting the scriptures. You're manipulating it for your own purposes, whatever reason it is, whether you're sincere, whether you're theologically trained, whether you've got personality, you're popular, that doesn't make any difference. You're wrong. And it goes on. Matthew chapter 15. Look at verses 1 through 14. We see the same thing. Some of the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Jesus said to them, And why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God? For the sake of tradition. You like that? You follow what he said? So he said, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Saying, why are they doing things that the elders specifically said they're not to do? And he went back to him and said, why do you transgress the commandments of God? Why do you take the word of God and manipulate it for your own reason and to build your own doctrine and build up your own structure and to build up your own program? Why do you do that? He says, for God said also, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. But no, you say, whoever shall say to his father or mother, anything of mine you might have been helped by, has been given to God. He's saying, why are you not, also, why are you not only making up things to add to the scripture, but why are you taking what's already clearly revealed and distorting it to make it more appeasing to yourselves? 
They're saying, oh, if we help our dad and mother, oh, then that's a sacrifice to God. There you go. But God says, that's not a sacrifice. That was a commandment. You're supposed to do it. So it wasn't extra and above or beyond. You didn't do anything different than what God told you to do. And yet you distorted to say, hey, you know what? I think we can find a loophole here. And Jesus says this. He is not to honor his father or his mother. He says, and thus you've invalidated the word of God for the sake of what? Your tradition. And he goes on and says, you know what? Let, let him alone, he said to his disciples, because they're blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides and a blind man, both of them are going to fall into the pit. Look at John chapter 3, verse 10. John chapter 3, verse 10. Jesus says this to Nicodemus. He said, Nicodemus doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about, about being born again. He doesn't have a clue what, what he's talking about. Nicodemus answered and said to Jesus, how can these things be? How can a man be born again? I don't get it. Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel? And you don't understand these things? You're a teacher of the words of God? And you don't have a clue what I'm talking about? Hello, we got a problem here. You see that? What's the point? I hope you understand it's obviously possible to quote Scripture correctly, but also to fail to maintain the correct meaning. It's possible to study and know the words, but not understand the meaning. It's, study, it's important to know that you can know the text, but not know the context. It's important to understand that we can manipulate things and not find truth. And you know what? The problem is, and what we're going to get into is, that God's word is truth. Absolute truth. Jesus said about his disciples, he prayed to his father and said, Sanctify them in truth, for your word is truth. 2 Timothy 3.16. Let's close on this. Because next time I want to get into some rules of interpretation that will help us. But I want to lay a foundation so that you'll understand that truth is not relative. Truth is not relative. 2 Timothy 3.16. Because we live, and, and it's sad, but we already know it. As a Barna research group came out and said, uh, a survey said, what Americans believe. And it confirmed what every one of us have known for a long time. And that is this. The survey uncovered many disturbing facts, but this is probably the most disturbing. 62% of Americans believe there is no such thing as absolute truth and that different people can define truth in conflicting ways that will still be correct. The figure rises to 72, 74% for those 18 to 25 years of age. Now, I don't know if you understand what that means, but this is what it means in the context of what we've been talking about. In 2 Timothy 3.16, we read this, that all Scripture, the Word of God, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, number one, for reproof, which means, hey, you know what? Uh-uh. What you're doing is wrong. For correction... What you're doing is wrong, but this is what you can do that will be right. And for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. You know what that means? That means that we cannot become people who fall prey to this. 
What does this verse mean to you? My first Bible study experience taught me very quickly how stupid that is. Think about this. First Bible study I ever went to after I became a Christian. Walk into a room, circle people, 30-some people in a room, small church. And the teacher says, what does this verse mean to you? And he starts to go around the room. And everybody has an answer or an opinion. And one opinion is different from the other opinion. It is different from the other opinion. And you can have conflicting opinions in that same room because this is what the verse means to them. And not once did I ever hear him say, no, no, that's, that's incorrect. You know what it was? It was this. That's a good answer. That's a good answer. That's a good answer. That's a good answer. And he came to me and said, what does this verse mean to you? And I said, you know what? I don't know. I was hoping that somebody here would know. <laughs> but it's pretty obvious that I came to the wrong room. Because nobody here knows anything other than what it means to them. Truth is not relative. Truth is truth. And the truth will set you free. Next week, we'll get into how can we make sure that we accurately handle the Word of God so that we are not ashamed and we are approved by God as a workman of the things of God. That we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. Oh, oh, one last thing. If you, if you want to tape from today, uh, my, my wife is at our daughter's championship soccer game. So she said, whatever you do, Chuck, don't get involved in the tape thing. So... Um, We'll just order them if you want one. See her next week so I don't mess it all up and get myself in trouble. And, uh, and, and I've learned over a period of time that's the best way to handle things in our household. Just don't mess stuff up and get in trouble. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, thank you for your word. We just thank you that you've, you've conveyed a thought or an idea and you've put it into written form so that we can accurately understand what you're trying to reveal to us. Help us clearly to see truth that's absolute and not relative. Help us to understand how to interpret what you're saying to us clearly so that we don't make the mistake of the Pharisees and the religious leaders who knew the words but just didn't understand the meaning. God, help us to become people who understand clearly your word so that we can then apply it in an appropriate manner that will be pleasing to you. And we just praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, homework.